Well, hey, good morning. I know it's gloomy outside, but can we just agree that it is exciting to worship Jesus together this morning? Amen? And what an honor and a joy and a privilege. And happy Labor Day weekend. You know, last night, my wife and I had a little um, disagreement. Uh, she had the fall decorations out, and I'm like, it's not fall. Literally, the leaves have to fall for it to be fall. And Labor Day tomorrow is supposed to be like in the high 80s. And she's like, well, it's Labor Day weekend. That starts fall. So I don't know where you fall on, on no pun intended, uh, on that side of the debate. But fall is coming. And so with that said, shameless plug, I want you guys to pull out your phones. If they're not out already, go ahead and pull out your phone. Here's the shameless plug. Go to your calendar app. October 13th, we are having our next Mission Sunday, and I am super excited about it. We're going to have about 10 of our ministry partners, some who were here last year, some who will be new, and we're going to have our worship services will be missions-themed in the morning, then in the evening, we're going to have a time here at Crown Point where we're all going to get together and just worship Jesus. It's going to be an interactive time of prayer and worship that's missions-themed, and my prayer is that all of us are burdened for our neighbors and for the nations. So October 13th, put that in your calendar, and uh, it's going to be an amazing time. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, we ask that you would do a mighty work in our midst. It is a joy. It is a privilege. It is exciting to come together to worship Jesus. And that is a, a privilege that may we never, ever take for granted May we never take our salvation and your grace and your mercy for granted. It is a free gift that we have done nothing to deserve. God, we pray right now that your word would stir hearts, move hearts, transform hearts and minds and souls. Would you right now, just where you are, silently pray over the preaching of the word that it would be done faithfully. And would you now pray over your own heart that whatever God has for you this morning would have a profound impact in your life. Father, all these things we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, knowing that people will only be changed by the word of God to the spirit of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, in life, we face hard truths all the time. Tough truths are difficult pills to swallow because they reveal something unflattering about ourselves. Case in point, this literally happened three days ago on Thursday. My wife had outpatient surgery, and so I go to the surgical center to pick her up. I go to the receptionist, and I say, hey, I'm Jared Bryant. I'm here to pick up Sky Bryant. And I said, okay, sign this form. So I do. And the receptionist literally says, now, are you Sky's father? <laughs> I think I literally made that noise. <sighs> and I said, no, um, I'm her husband. And she goes, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you're not making it any better. So I go to the back to the recovery area where Skye is, and she's just coming out of general anesthesia, and I tell her everything that just happened. 
Now, because she's under anesthesia, I'm going to blame this reaction on the drugs. But she just laughed and laughed and laughed. Because to her, it was this beautiful, flattering compliment of her radiant exuberance, her youthful vigor. But to me, that was an inconvenient truth. I'm not as young as I used to be. And truth hurts, but it sanctifies. And we tend to avoid tough truths because they are uncomfortable. They sting. And the Bible is chock full of uncomfortable, tough truths. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus literally prays to the Father regarding us, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now, we can choose to ignore these truths and remain in ignorance, or we can deal with them and let truth have its profound effect on our lives. And one of the most difficult truth pills to swallow is this. Salvation is granted by grace, not deserved through merit, status, or all-inclusive handouts. Now, most of you would agree with that. That's a beautiful truth, right? Most of you would amen that. Most of you would amen that. (laughs) Good job. Especially if you've grown up in church, you're thinking, yeah, this is great. I agree with that. But if that truth doesn't hurt your pride, doesn't sting your ego just a little bit, it's probably because you have not really thought through its implications. So let's look at Luke chapter 4. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. And as you turn there, let me give you two disclaimers this morning. Number one, Keep an open mind with biblical discretion and humility. G.K. Chesterton said, an open mind is like an open mouth. Its purpose is to bite down on something nourishing and solid. Otherwise, it becomes an open sewer, accepting everything, rejecting nothing. So when you hear something, you have to let it go through the filter of Scripture, and there is nothing more solid and nourishing than Scripture. And so let's be open to what God has to say about himself through his word. Number two, this will not answer all your questions. In fact, I am pretty sure you are going to leave today with more questions than you had coming in. And that's okay. That's a good thing. I still wrestle with this topic in my mind. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all reconciled. And this, these truths that we're talking about today are not initially easily palatable. And that's a good thing. It's good to have questions of God and of theological matters. If we didn't, if we felt like we had it all figured out, we would be prideful and we would not feel our need for God. There's an inherent mystery to his nature, to his character, to his will. Ephesians 1.9 literally calls the gospel the mystery of his will. Now, is it good to pursue understanding of lofty concepts like how God operates? Yes, but know that we will never fully comprehend his infinite mind. You you understand that we as finite people, we only know of God what he has chosen to reveal about himself, which is probably just an infinitesimal, minute fraction of the totality of God's mind. Now, because this is a tough truth, some of you may not see eye to eye with our teaching really this entire fall, and that's okay too. We can believe all these biblical concepts, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, God's infinite love, and infinite justice. We can believe they're all true, they're all compatible, somehow they all reconcile in his nature and character. We can speculate on how they reconcile, 
And we can agree to disagree, and we can still love each other in unity and Christian brotherly love, right? But ultimately, we have to consign to this fact, Father knows best. And so let's look at chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 16. I love preaching Jesus. This is flat out Jesus. Here we go. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Now I grew up in a small town. I mean, this town was so small. How small was it? (laughs) It was so small that a night on the town took about 11 minutes. It was so small that the city limit signs were on the same signpost. It was so small that the local 7, yeah, you're booing already. The local 7-Eleven was more like a three and a half, five and a half. Yeah, that, okay, I'll stop there. I got a lot of small town jokes. True story, it was so small that there was a section of the local newspaper called the Eckley News. Eckley was a town nearby of about 150 people. And the newspaper editor would call every household every week and say, what was the most exciting, newsworthy thing that happened to you this week? And so I kid you not, in an entire page of the newspaper, it would say something like, Claudette went to Fran's house where they had chicken piccata and they watched MacGyver. (laughs) I wish I was joking. (laughs) There are pros and cons to small town life. A pro is, everybody knows you. A con is, everybody knows you. And Jesus did not have anything shameful or embarrassing to hide, yet they knew his family. They didn't see him as anything special or unique, simply as the son of a lowly carpenter. And Jesus, at this point, is at the beginning of his ministry. He's starting to make some public waves. You look back at verses 14 and 15. His fame is starting to spread. And though he wasn't quite at the height of his popularity, everyone in Nazareth knew Jesus, and speculated about him. The text says that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. The Apostle Paul also had this custom. They would go to the Jewish people first, to the place where they were worshiping and praying and learning about God from the Scriptures. So Jesus goes to the synagogue, and he was given a significant responsibility, a place of honor, perhaps because he was gaining renown for his impressive teaching. Local synagogue authorities would invite distinguished guests to read a section of the scriptures and then to preach. And in synagogue, they would pray, they would recite the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would worship, they would read portions of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, and then there would be a sermon. And so Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins reading Isaiah 61, which is this incredible 
beautiful messianic prophetic passage. So you can turn with me there if you will, or you can look up on the screen. I'm going to read portions of Isaiah 61. Now this is such a fantastic passage. I want us to be vocal with this, right? It's okay to say amen in church. If you hear something praiseworthy, something exciting, just say amen. Here we go. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, for I, the Lord, love justice. And I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Man, that is good stuff. What an exceptionally joyous passage. And the Israelites would have loved this passage of great victory and celebration. And they would have heard this and assumed that it was inherently applying to them. But Jesus stops reading, partially through verse 2. He rolls up the scroll. He hands it back to the attendant. And he sits down. And everyone is waiting with bated breath in eager anticipation for what he's going to do. Imagine if I'm reading John chapter 3. And I get to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Now, they were probably like all of you, what is he doing? (laughs) What is going on? This is highly unusual. They're expecting Jesus to do something, perhaps preach the passage that he just Read, but instead of teaching, he says something radical. Look back at Luke chapter 4. He says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, not someday, not later, not soon, now. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? He is saying that he was appointed by God to proclaim good news to set people free. But he doesn't mention liberty for all. He specifically lists the poor, the captives or prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. These are the marginalized, the downcast, the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, people with no elite status to claim, no merit to cling to, nothing within them or about them to hold in high regard, and Jesus proclaims that he gives them freedom. Why? They do not see a solution within themselves that can liberate them. These are the hopeless without the slightest hope of self-appointed, self-ordained salvation. And they are at a point of desperation, realizing that nothing in this world and nothing within them can save them. Friends, that's you and that's me. We have no hope within us. So God must do all the liberating from our sin and all the liberating from his wrath which is due upon us because of our sin. Jesus said, I was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is to say, salvation is at hand, and oh, by the way, it's through 
me. Now, I realized last week was it's all about him Sunday, but you realize Jesus is literally saying it's all about me. It's all about him. The era of salvation is here, and Jesus is presenting himself as its appointed herald. Jesus not only proclaimed the gospel, he is the gospel. He is the gospel. And he makes it very clear that it is by grace, not merit. We see that in the next verse. He says, it says the people marveled at literally the words of grace that came from Jesus' mouth. And they were impressed by his teaching. Now, if only we could stop this passage here, things would be great, peachy keen, we'd go about our day, but we have to deal with difficult truths. And the passage goes on, and so we press on. Verse 22, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, but Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a widow, a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, healed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So the people were astonished at his speaking, but they were not convicted by his truth claims. Their hearts were unmoved, they were unaffected. Great preaching, Jesus! Woo! Love that sermon. But did the Lord use truth from his word to hit home in hearts? Admiration of preaching will not change your heart. It will not save your soul. And by saying, isn't this Joseph's son? They were essentially saying, how could this man be the Messiah that he claims to be who sets people free? We know his dad. We know his family. Who does he think he is? They thought they knew Jesus because they thought they knew his family origins, but they didn't know his father. Not his real father. This was blatant unbelief. And we see this in Mark chapter 6. Turn with me there. Mark chapter 6, we see a parallel passage describing the same event. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went away from there and he came to his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. Not that he was not capable, but he wouldn't except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. They marveled at his teaching, now he marvels at their unbelief. Unbelief was the reaction to the truth of Isaiah 61. And so Jesus, knowing that they're thinking to themselves, physician, heal yourself. Meaning, you're a Nazarene, so give us special favor. Do the miracles now that we heard that you did elsewhere, and then maybe we'll believe in you. Perhaps this was a case of familiarity breeds contempt, but regardless, they did not believe that salvation, true liberty, comes only through Jesus. 
And Jesus is about to show that salvation is not reserved only for the spiritually elite, nor is it widely disseminated to all. And to that end, he gives a heavy indictment using two Old Testament stories. So the first, go to 1 Kings 17. This is the widow of Zarephath. 1 Kings 17. In verse 8, it says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah the prophet, and he tells him to go to Zarephath where he will meet a widow who will take care of him and feed him. So he meets this widow, and he asks for water, he asks for bread, and she, gets, she says this in verse 12, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This woman had reached the end of her rope. She was despairing of even her own life. She's, she's thinking, this is it. Let's get all the ingredients in the cupboard, everything in the pantry. Let's put it all together, and we will have one final meal, and then we're going to die. But Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you, have, as you have said. But first, make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And sure enough, they never run out of flour or oil until the drought, the famine is over. God sustains the widow and Elijah and the widow's son. Now one could potentially read this and think, well, she was a humble woman who was obedient. She was following the Lord's commands, instructions. She was demonstrating faith and nobility. So of course the Lord spared her. She deserved it. Well, did she? Interestingly, she refers to God as the Lord, your God. Not my God, not our God, the Lord, your God. What else do we know about this woman? Well, she was living under immense guilt and shame in verses 17 and 18, for some major sin in her past. We don't know what it was, but she just, she, she knew the chickens would come home to roost and that she deserved to die. Immense guilt. She knew that salvation was not within her. She had done nothing to deserve grace, and she knew it. Now look at the next story. Look at the, go to the next book over, 2 Kings chapter 5. Quite a different story. We see this guy named Naaman. Verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And he hears about this prophet Elisha. And so in verse 9, he goes to him. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots. He stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought surely he would appear before me. He would come out to me and he'd call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He had this, self, uh, this preconceived notion of how it would all go down. I mean, surely the prophet would at least appear before my face. Does he not know who I am and how important I am? And he, and he wants me to wash in that nasty, stanky river, Jordan. Don't we have nice rivers in Damascus? And his servants, he, go, he turns and goes away in a rage, and his servants come near, and they said to him, my father, it's a great word that the prophet has said to you. What does it matter how he prescribes the healing? Go wash and be clean. And so he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored 
like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He was healed. Sign me up for that, by the way, to have the flesh of a little child, no acne, no gray hairs, no wrinkles. I mean, not only is Naaman healed, he's actually, his youthful vigor is restored. It's incredible. But this story, the main character, quite the opposite of, in terms of demeanor here. Naaman is mighty and proud. He's a commander of a vast army in complete contrast to a lowly widow. He had wealth. He had power. He had status. He felt no need for God until he got leprosy. And even then, he scoffs at how Elisha prescribed his healing. Now, did the widow do anything to deserve miraculous provisions to sustain her life and her son? No. Did Naaman do anything to deserve miraculous healing? No. Could God have sustained all the widows in Israel during this famine? Yes, but he didn't. Could God have healed all the lepers in Israel during Elisha's life? Yes, but he didn't. Jesus is implying that the verses he read from Isaiah about salvation through the gospel do not apply to everyone, certainly not those who think they deserve it. Could God save everyone? Yes, he is capable, but he doesn't. Why? I fear that I am treading on sacred ground, and so I want to be careful here as we try to peer into the eternal mind of God. Is it because only some are deserving of salvation? Is anyone deserving of salvation? Are you? Am I? You know, in most states in our nation, the governor has the power and authority to pardon any prisoner that he or she wants. And in some states, even on a whim, like they don't even have to have a justifiable reason. It could be someone on death row. So imagine that a governor pardons one year a handful of prisoners. Well, the general population would say, oh, what a, what a merciful governor. These people didn't do anything to deserve their sentence being shortened. They didn't deserve their pardon being released. What a merciful governor. And let's say the next year the governor pardons no one. No prisoners are pardoned. The population would say, well, this person is upholding justice. But let's say the following year the governor pardons all prisoners in the entire state. From maximum security prison to lowly petty crimes, I mean every single prisoner set free. Do you, can you imagine the backlash that that governor would face? Well, this governor doesn't understand justice at all, doesn't uphold the law, and quite frankly, doesn't even really understand mercy. Why should we expect any less of God? Why does God not save everyone? I don't know. And I don't have to know. I don't have to know the reason or multiple reasons but one possible reason could be that God saves some instead of not all to uphold his justice and demonstrate his mercy. Notice another strategically placed phrase in Jesus' teaching here. In Israel. There were many widows in Israel, but the Lord sent Elijah to a non-Israelite. There were many lepers in Israel, but only a Syrian was cleansed. Israelites would have balked at this teaching. We are the chosen people. Of course we deserve God's blessing. How dare you say that a Gentile, a non-Jewish person 
receive salvation, that it be offered to them as well. There are essentially two major points that Jesus is making here in Luke 4. First, salvation does not come through universalism. Universalism is this teaching that everyone gets saved, that love wins, love triumphs over justice and wrath as if they're in conflict. And universalism is the treasured jewel of our society. You, you start saying that not everyone is saved, you got a target on your back. Every human does have inherent worth because we were made in the image of God. God's image was imprinted on our hearts, on our souls, on our minds. But we also have inherent wickedness. We are not naturally good. Our bent is toward evil and wickedness and rebellion. So all roads do not lead to heaven. As Keith Green said, all roads lead to the judgment seat of Christ. Tough truth. Second tough truth that Jesus gives here is salvation also does not come through entitlement. Good news of liberty through Jesus is applied to those who are willing to accept it, not to those who think they deserve it because of what they've done or who they are. Salvation only comes through Jesus by mercy and grace. Now, how do you think the people reacted to this? this that, that, that the good news read earlier is not applied to all, is not even applied to entitled people who think they deserve it. Not well. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove Jesus out of town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on, their, on which their town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They hear this teaching. And in the middle of synagogue, much like a church service now, they grab Jesus in a blind rage and they take him outside of town, take him up to a cliff, and they're about to throw him off the cliff to murder him. Yeah, I would say they didn't really care for this. What a departure from their attitude in verse 22. Some hate that salvation is not based on merit or status or deserved in any way. It goes against our very human nature. We want to contribute to our own salvation. It's a control issue. Salvation is squarely in God's hands. Nothing we do deserves salvation. In fact, we have contributed really only one thing to the gospel, and that's our sin. And we do deserve something, but it is the wrath of God upon us because of our sin. J.C. Ryle wrote, Of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. To be told that God is great and just and holy and pure, man can bear. But to be told that God has mercy on him who he chooses is a truth that the natural man cannot stand. It often fills him with anger toward God. Nothing in short will make him submit to God but the humbling teaching of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Folks, this is a hard teaching. I didn't even want to preach this passage. I didn't want to preach this topic. This is difficult stuff. But one of the things I love about Bethel, one of our distinctives is that we will not avoid tough truths. We will not avoid tough passages because it's convenient. We will wrestle with this. And I continually wrestle with this. So let's wrestle together with these tough truths. There are strong implications here. So let me give you a few of those implications. Number one, God's love is not limited It's not limited by people group, gender, age, social status, financial status, or any other human factors. No one can claim ownership of God's mercy and grace. He dispenses it at will. 
And do you realize there are people from unreached people groups with no access to the gospel, and God is getting them the gospel through human means. We'll talk about that in Romans 10. He's getting the gospel to them. The gospel is being proclaimed to them, and they are turning to Christ, being saved in saving faith. Is that not exciting? There are 7,000 unreached people groups in our world composed of 3 billion people with no access to the gospel right now. But as missional trends are starting to show, if the trajectory stays as it is, it's very possible that in the next 50 years, in our lifetime, we might see every unreached people group have a gospel witness within their communities. How incredible is that? Don't tell me God's love is limited. Number two, similarly, God's sovereignty and evangelism are not mutually exclusive. Jesus preached good news to these people, the Jewish people in his hometown, knowing that most would not believe. God's sovereignty does not diminish our responsibility to pray and to proclaim. Conversely, it actually increases our confidence in those things because we know the sovereign one to whom we pray and we know the sovereign one who we proclaim. They're not mutually exclusive. Number three, God's mercy is undeserved. When you are saved, there's only one thing that governs God's attitude toward you, and it is mercy, mercy, mercy. And Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins. Now, how do dead people decide things for themselves? How do dead people talk? How do dead people make themselves alive? They don't. You know what it's called when dead people make themselves alive? Zombies. <laughs> and let's reserve that for the walking dead. They don't. They can't. And I can't help but think about this and look at this passage and all this teaching this fall and think, why, God? Why did God save me? I didn't do anything to deserve it. Nothing to warrant it. I deserved hell. And I think to a degree, if we're going to really understand the gospel, we have to understand that notion that we deserved hell. And if not for Jesus, that would be me. Why would he choose me? I used to have spiritual survivor's guilt for years, and I would ask God, God, why me? God never answered that question. He doesn't have to. But I think if he did, he would say, yeah, why you indeed? You have not done anything to deserve it. No merit, no effort, no earning. You're not entitled. I think about the book of Job. In the book of Job, you have the main character whose name is, well, Job. <laughs> And Job goes through unspeakable suffering. And he asks the same question, God, why me? But not of salvation, but of suffering. And God doesn't answer that question, at least not in the way he expects. He answers that question with a series of questions from chapters 38 to 41. And these questions point to two truths. God's greatness, that he's capable of all things, that he's sovereign over all, and God's goodness. And so a better question is, God, are you always great? God, are you always good? And to that question, I believe that he would emphatically, unequivocally, and infinitely say yes. And that leads to the last point. God is both good and great. His mercy and sovereignty are not at odds, nor are his power and his love, and we have to trust his character and nature, especially when we don't understand. God is not the author of evil. But he can take evil, he can take our wickedness and flip it on its head and use it somehow as a means to an end for his will and his glory. Remember Romans 8, 28? 
God works all things for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what is the good? Well, the greatest good we could possibly have is to glorify him and be in his glory. So our greatest good is his glory. God operates and does all things for our good and his glory. And the cross was the perfect intersection of God's greatness and God's goodness. On the cross, God's justice met his mercy. God's sovereign holiness met his love. His greatness met his goodness. And if you ever question God's justice and mercy, look no further than the cross. That's the links that God would go to save your soul. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to actually, let's stand right now. Dustin's going to come up right now. And lead us in a song. And as we are singing this, I want you to reflect on these truths. I want you to pray. And maybe you are here and you're thinking, man, I don't know where I stand with God. You know, Romans 10, 13, this amazing verse says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Folks, that's a promise. You're not sure where you stand with God? Call out to him. Jesus, save me.